Chapter Thirty One, Part Two of Margaret Sanger by Margaret Sanger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty One, Part Two. Great heights are hazardous. By now I knew I should be gone for at least another year, and someone had to take charge during my absence. The woman on our board of directors, who seemed to be the most selflessly devoted, giving time and effort without stint, able to speak and to direct, was Mrs. F. Robertson Jones. She went to meetings in blizzard or rainstorm, by subway or on foot if necessary. No dressmaker, no friend dropping in to lunch kept her from her job. But she differed from me in one respect. She could not run things unless she felt secure. She wanted a definite signing on the dotted line for so much annually instead of voluntary contributions of what people felt they could afford when they could afford it. This was quite against the spirit on which the movement had always proceeded, but I was willing to compromise. I did not realize how serious it was going to prove in the future to have ceded this fundamental precept. She accepted the temporary presidency, and I sailed back, reaching Geneva in July. I was surprised at the rising tide of international solidarity which, in this non-industrial city, evidenced itself in astonishing fashion the night Sacco and Vanzetti were to be electrocuted. I had been working late at the office, and when I came out towards midnight the crowds in the street were so dense I could hardly move. As soon as word came in the early morning that the execution had not been stayed, they shouted reproaches before the houses of Americans, smashed the windows of the United States Consulate, and some in the League building. Even in front of the Hotel de Burg, where we were stopping, they clamored their protests. The great Dr. William Welch of Johns Hopkins was in Geneva at this time, a cheerful person, roly-poly, abounding in fun and sly, acute remarks. To listen to his unimpressive conversation, you would never suspect that here was one whose name was known around the world. We had lunch together one noon. He knew how much I was depending on the conference, how much I was hoping that the population aspect of birth control should be started in the right direction and under the right auspices. He walked a little way with me, and then, putting his arm across my shoulders, said, Perhaps you think your battles are over, but they aren't. I felt like he was trying to prepare me for something having gone wrong, though I could not imagine what it was. From then on, I was aware of an unpleasant subterranean mystery insidiously disturbing the previous harmony, but nobody talked openly. During my absence in the United States, Sir Bernard had been collecting his European friends. Not only was Italy intent on increasing her population, but the reactionary element of France 
also had formed a society to combat birth control. We had invited the Italians, Guglielmo Ferraro and Gaetano Salvamini, but Sir Bernard had been induced to accept as a substitute Corrado Gini, who, dark, swarthy, highly egotistical, speaking English painfully, was the perfect mirror of Mussolini's sentiments, and turned out to be a most tiresome speaker and a general nuisance. The delegates, Gini among the first, began to gather late in August. The storm broke the Friday before our scheduled opening, Tuesday, August 31st. Proofs of the official program had just come to me for my approval. Sir Bernard came into my office and looked at them. Well, we'll just cross these off, he said, drawing his pencil through my name and those of my assistants. Why are you doing that? The names of the workers should not be included on scientific programs. These people are different, I objected. In their particular lines, they are as much experts as the scientists. It doesn't matter. That can't go on. Out of the question, it's not done. A long cry of dismay went up from the staff. They considered the action reprehensible and petty. The young woman who was to deliver the program to the printers would not do so. Saturday morning, secretaries and typists... 21 altogether, struck in a body, and without them the conference could not proceed successfully. While Dr. Little was trying his powers of persuasion on them, I reported the situation to Sir Bernard, saying that in justice to the women who had given so generously of their time and effort, who had raised the money, issued the invitations, paid the delegates' expenses, they should be given proper credit. All the latter had had to do was walk in at the last moment, present their papers, and take part in the social life planned for them. Having registered my sentiments, I spent most of Sunday convincing the members of the staff that the conference was bigger than their own hurt feelings and making them promise to return. Edith Howe Martin, however, who had joined me some time before, refused to continue because the hard labor of the workers was not to be acknowledged. Though suspecting that the elimination of my name was the crux of the matter, I was still at a loss to know the exact reason back of this tempest until one of the delegates told me the story. Sir Eric Drummond had warned Sir Bernard that these distinguished scientists would be the laughing-stock of all Europe if it were known that a woman had brought them together. Hence, in order to influence Italian and French delegates to attend, Sir Bernard had secretly pledged that I was not to be a party to the conference and no discussion of birth control or Malthusianism would be allowed. He had hoped that the whole thing might be muddled through and, when the delegates had come drifting in, had gone from one to another to urge, I ask you to stand by me. Do not let me down. Only our young English friends had held out for the recognition of the woman. 
I was not surprised at the Europeans. But it was difficult to comprehend the American attitude on this point. Perhaps Professor Pearl and Dr. Little, in agreeing to support Sir Bernard, had not realized the unfairness of the action. Clarence Little was as honest a human being as you could find. But sometimes I thought his personal allegiances obstructed his vision. He used his intelligence to make up arguments on the side of loyalty rather than on the side of principles. At the hour designated, the first meeting opened in the Salle Centrale. Each delegate had a number of extra tickets, and with the German, Belgian, and French contingents came several gentlemen with large silver crosses hanging down outside their coats. In the lobby, a Genovese book concern had been permitted to set up a table for the sale of volumes by delegates. These guests immediately demanded of Sir Bernard that a certain one, of which they disapproved, be banished. Sir Bernard trotted to me and said he wished no trouble. There seemed to be some controversy. Would I have the offending books taken away? I approached the strangers and asked who they were. They vociferated in various languages, shaking the book under my nose, getting red in the face, looking as though apoplexy might smite them. I sent for an interpreter and instructed him to say, The hall will be for rent next Monday. Meantime, I have paid for it and will suffer no dictation from anybody as to what shall be done here. The disturbers did not depart, and the excitement around the bookstand was so considerable that the volumes were sold out and more had to be ordered. During the course of the conference, the Americans, British, and Scandinavians admitted the need for limiting population. The Germans and Czechs concurred, although with less assurance. The Italian and Slav voices were definitely opposed. The French, who practiced it at home, preached against it publicly. The papers of Professors East and Fairchild came perilously near mentioning the forbidden word Malthusianism, but as for birth control, it was edged about like a bomb which might explode any moment. At the close of the three days, a permanent population union was formed, which is still meeting, the only international group dealing with the problem. All the brilliant committee now took trains and steamed off for home, leaving me with the bills, the clearing up, and most important of all, the editing of the proceedings. After a rest at a sanatorium at Glion in Switzerland, I set to work, and by the end of November they had gone to press. I wanted to visit India, but had to think of this trip in terms of physical fitness and, consequently, was obliged to forego it. Instead, I accepted an invitation sent me by Agnes Smedley on behalf of the Association of German Medical Women to lecture in Germany in December. The Berlin of 1927 was far different from that of 1920. Food was plentiful, if expensive. The Adlon and other restaurants were crowded, 
A stirring of life and nationalism was everywhere to be sensed. At the appearance of a zeppelin in the skies, men in the streets took off their hats as though it had been a god. When I spoke in the town hall of Charlottenburg, Berlin, I was reminded of the birth strike German women had been carrying on when I had last been there. German men seemed to have remembered little of this, still thinking they could keep their wives to childbearing, their race function, as it was called. But the women had now definitely directed their thoughts from race preservation to self-preservation. As I said to my audience, birth control has always been practiced, beginning with infanticide, which is abhorred, and then by abortion, nearly as bad. Contraception, on the other hand, is harmless. Almost before I had finished, Dr. Alfred Grotjan, professor of social hygiene at the University of Berlin, who was seeking to present the picture of Germany's future greatness in terms of numbers, shouted out that every woman ought to have three children before she should be allowed contraceptive information. No sooner had he resumed his seat than several women were demanding recognition. I was told one of them was Dr. Martha Reuben Wolf. She's a communist. What she's saying is all on your side, but it won't do any good because nobody has ever been able to cope with Grotjan. Nevertheless, she answered him figure for figure, fact for fact, each based on her experience, adding that his patriotism was only skin deep. He might as well bury himself now. He would soon be buried by the rising generation and forgotten. Then a huge shape arose, garbed in uniform and bonnet. I thought she must be a deaconess, but she turned out to be president of the Midwives Association. She bellowed in tones even louder than those of Grotjan, putting herself on record against birth control. She could not be stopped. She would not sit down even when the bell was rung. Others answered her. The debate developed into a regular bear garden before the contestants were separated and removed. As a result of the meeting, some twenty women physicians gathered at my hotel two evenings later. Clinics were to be established at Neukolln under Dr. Kurt Bendix, the health administrator of the section. For the first time in history, a government agency was actually sanctioning birth control. I promised $50 a month for three years toward supplies. The doctors agreed to furnish rooms and medical services. They had a more feminist point of view than ours in the United States. Ellen Key's liberal influence had seeped through from Scandinavia. Nevertheless, I was astonished that in the very country where we were purchasing our contraceptives, these outstanding members of their profession knew practically nothing about them. The original clinic was opened the following May and for five years contraceptive information was given in a dozen places under medical supervision. Then the Nazis came into power, they were closed, and Dr. Bendix committed suicide. 
Towards the middle of the month, I went to Frankfurt am Main, where Dr. Hirth Rees was managing one of the largest of the marriage advice bureaus, of which there were about 1,500 in Germany. Anyone could apply to these for legal information and, for example, receive enlightenment as to who should have custody of a child if illegitimate, the amount of alimony to be paid by the husband in case of divorce, the nationality of a child if the father were a foreigner, the effect of sterilization, the results of the marriage of cousins, or any problem, including homosexuality and inversion, feeble-mindedness and abortion. In this period of great unemployment, bearing particularly heavily upon families with many children, Dr. Rees had gone to the officers of one of the big health insurance companies and persuaded them that it would be economical for them to underwrite sterilization of women carrying health insurance if this were advised by a doctor. I saw her order 75 of these major operations one evening between 6 o'clock and 8.30 in her own clinic. Professor Grochan had created almost a slogan by his demand that in order to bolster up the falling birth rate, every wife have three children. But the women had a counter-slogan. They came in saying, I've had my three, I want an operation. I saw also some who had returned from the hospital to report. They appeared happy and proud and pleased with themselves. Their ten days or two weeks in bed had meant food and much-needed rest. After Germany, I went vacationing to San Moritz, to play, to skate, to ski, in that glorious high altitude. It was transcendently beautiful. I used to get up in the morning and listen to the sleighs coming up the hills with their tinkling bells and look out at the scintillating snow. Every twig of every tree was encased in ice on which the sun glistened without melting it. The scene was a white etching. St. Moritz was much frequented by nobility and royalty on holiday. Whenever one of them arrived, like a flock of birds, the hangers-on winged their way thither, settled down in all the hotels so that ordinary folk could scarcely find room. Almost the first person I met was Lady Astor, more British than the British themselves, the southern accent entirely gone. Her blonde hair was turned sand-colored, her blue eyes were always gay, her tanned and rugged features sharp, mouth and jaw firm-set, neck clean-cut. She was quick-tempered and frank, and ready to take fire easily. Lord Astor, who was devoted to his wife, was much more politically astute, and usually went campaigning with her. He sat directly behind her, and when the heckling began, or a question was posed which might involve her in difficulties, he called out in a stage whisper, Don't be drawn, Nancy, don't be drawn. During one House of Commons debate, 
Lady Astor had attempted to drive home a point by stating she was the mother of five children and therefore ought to know. Her opponent, taking issue with her, had jumped up, saying his word should carry more weight on the subject because he was the father of seven. Lady Astor then retorted, but I haven't finished yet. The British professed to be horrified at this, so vulgar and American. Once, after Lady Astor had been off skiing all day, I joined her in her room shortly before dinner. She was sitting up in bed, the windows wide open, cold cream smeared over her sunburned face, her glasses on her nose, reading Science and Health with a Bible nearby. She had not quite ended her day's lesson. Almost wherever I am, the subject of birth control comes up sooner or later, and it did on this occasion. Lady Astor seemed to think her religion forbade her believing in it. If they want babies, let them have babies. If they don't want them, let them practice continence. Even accepting that continence is the ultimate ideal, I replied, wouldn't you agree that contraception as an immediate necessity to help millions of women is of equal importance with wearing glasses to read the Bible? As a good Christian scientist, you should not use them. Until you get enough faith to go without, don't you think it might be better to read Mary Baker Eddy through some such means as glasses than not at all? In one second she beamed. You're perfectly right. That's only reasonable. If you present common-sense people with the premise that birth control is common sense, they will always react in a common-sense way. Lady Astor was a practical person, and from that time on she has been a friend of the movement. End of chapter 31, part 2